We'll begin with a word of prayer and get started. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the God who is there. Even when you're not audible or visible, you are there working behind the scenes, guiding us and protecting us, and making the outcome of our lives the way that you would have them be, and, and bringing about your awesome plan. We thank you for these things, and we help you. We ask that you will help us to see this more clearly in the Book of Esther. Yeah, we thank you and ask for these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. Esther, Jesus Christ, our Advocate. So we'll look at the flight characteristics of the Book of Esther, and once again, flight is facts, landmarks, itinerary gospel, history, and travel tips. So the facts, when, who wrote the book and when was the book written? While internal evidence makes clear that the author was Jewish and familiar with Persian customs, the author is no longer known. The book must have been written after the reign of Xerxes and probably some considerable time thereafter for references such as the following, uh, would seem to imply a generation at least. So it does seem that it was written after the reign of, of King Xerxes. Traditionally, some have ascribed the book to Mordecai, but his career seems to have ended well before the book was written. Others have speculated that Ezra or Nehemiah wrote the book. The book was probably written around 460 BC, about 20 years or so after the events described. The landmarks, well, what the book is about, a genocidal plot by the Persian king's advisor, Haman, brings grave danger to the Jews, but is countered by the courage of a beautiful Jewish woman named Esther, providentially placed in the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther's courage, along with the wise counsel of her cousin, Mordecai, resulted in deliverance for the Jewish people and demonstrated Yahweh's sovereign power over people and nations. The itinerary, I'll give you a brief outline of, of what the book is about. The, the first two chapters are about the supernatural providence of God. Then in chapters 3 through 5, we learn about satanic plotting, the horrendous plot of, of Haman to destroy the Jewish people. And then in chapters 6 through 10, we learn about God's sovereign protection of his people. How does this book relate to the gospel? Most of the time when God moves in human history, he moves through ordinary events, weaving them into the fabric of his perfect will. Though unmentioned, God's providential presence is all over the book of Esther, preserving his people and through them the line of the Messiah. Like Esther, we can only approach our king by the gracious, gracious provision that he has made for our acceptance. History. The book of Esther refers to the king who ruled the Persian Empire at that time as Ahasuerus. Uh, the Hebrew is Akashverosh. 
But there was no Persian king by that name, so, so who was he? Well, there has been some dispute about this, but most scholars today are in agreement about this. Um, the Jewish historian Josephus, Josephus thought it was Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes. But most scholars today identify the king as Xerxes. The events of Esther seem to better fit with the facts we know about Xerxes from history. So it seems more likely that Xerxes was the king and not Artaxerxes. Now, the Septuagint actually comes out and says that this Ahasuerus was Artaxerxes. But uh, that, that was uh, a couple centuries BC that the Septuagint was written. So it was quite a while after this, and, and that doesn't seem to be correct. Now, what's interesting about Xerxes, it, the Book of Esther is one, it's one of my favorite books in terms of the archaeological support for it. Because we can even know what Xerxes looked like. This is a, a stone carving of Xerxes seated upon the throne. And the man standing behind him is believed to be Artaxerxes, his son. His son Artaxerxes is the one who set in motion that 70 weeks prophecy that we read about in Daniel chapter 9. There's a close-up of Xerxes, and you can see that he's holding his scepter. This would have been the scepter that he extended to allow Esther to approach his throne. So that, that is Xerxes. Esther's Hebrew name was Hadassah, which means myrtle, a tree, myrtle, the myrtle tree. The name Esther, given to her when she became queen, is often thought to be connected with the Persian or the Persian word stara, meaning star, that's where our word star derives from, or with the goddess Ishtar. But there is also a similarity in sound between her name and the Hebrew verb, S-T-R, meaning to conceal or to hide. So, so keep that in mind, conceal or hide, something hidden, something concealed. When we get to the end and I talk about the things that make you go, hmm. The name Mordecai is, well attest, is a well-attested name from texts of this period. A 5th century Aramaic inscription contains the, the name M-R-D-K. The treasure tablets found in the treasury from the Persian city of Persepolis date from the 30th year of Darius I to the, second, to the seventh year of Artaxerxes I. So that would be the period of 492 to 458 BC. They contain names like Marduka. And 50 of these tablets come from the time of Xerxes. So Mordecai is a, is a well-attested name in this time period. So let's, let's back up a little bit. When we, when we go to... Daniel chapter 2, we read about this huge metallic image with a head of gold and the arms and chest of silver and the belly and thighs of bronze and the, and the legs of iron. And we're told in Daniel chapter 2 what, these, what this statue represents and what, that these four different components represent different kingdoms. So the image of, in Daniel chapter 2 the, the head of gold represents the Babylonian Empire, the, the empire that carried Israel, that carried Judah captive. And then the, 
Babylonian Empire was conquered by the next empire, the Silver Empire, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, and that's the one that we're going to be concerned about in this story of Esther. And of course, later on, they were followed by the, the Bronze Empire, the Greco-Macedonian Empire under Alexander the Great, and then finally the, the Roman Empire that came on the scene just before the time of Christ. But we're going to be concerned with that second empire, the, the Medo-Persian Empire. It's called the Medo-Persian Empire because it was composed of the Medes and the Persians. And this is a, uh, a stone carving of, of Medes and Persians, Mede, Mede soldiers from Medea and soldiers from Persia. And they're, they're easily distinguishable because the ones with the rounded hats those are Medes, and the ones with the fluted hats, those are Persians. So it's not difficult to tell the soldiers apart. At the time of Daniel, the Medes are mentioned first. It always talks about the Medes and the Persians. They're mentioned first because they were then the dominant power of the two. By the time of Esther, the Persians had become the dominant power. So this entity came to be known as, as the Persian Empire. So a little, little background here. Cyrus, the king of Persia, had defeated the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. So it is now, in the book of Esther, it is now in early in the 5th century B.C., and Xerxes is on the throne, the first return of the Babylonian captives led by Zerubbabel has already occurred. Most Jews, however, remained in Persia. It will be a couple more decades before a, a second wave occurs under Ezra, followed by a third under Nehemiah. Now, I mentioned that the Persians defeated the Babylonians, and shortly after the, the Persians came to power, Cyrus, King Cyrus, issued a decree. And this here is, is the Cyrus Cylinder. And what it says is that it, it does confirm what, exactly what the Bible says, that, that King Cyrus allowed the peoples of his empire to go back to their homelands and to reestablish their, their native religions. And of course, included in that was the Jewish people. They went back to Jerusalem and began building the temple. So this is the clay cylinder giving the edict from Cyrus that allowed people to return to their homelands. When I covered the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, I mentioned to you that the events described in the book of Esther actually take place in the midst of the events of the book of, of Ezra. So over here we have chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra, and then we have a, a long gap, about a 58-year gap, time gap between that, before we get to the 7th chapter of Ezra. And in this gap is, is where the, the events of the book of Esther take place. Once again, during the reign of, of King Xerxes. And then his son, Artaxerxes, was the, was the king who issued the decree that allowed the the uh, 70 weeks prophecy to begin. So, 
was what, once again at these events in history. Jerusalem fell in 586 BC. It was conquered by the Babylonians. And then Persia in turn conquered Babylon in 539 BC. Cyrus issued his decree. And so the first return of the exiles to Jerusalem came in 538 BC. And now we're going to move into the, the events of the book of Esther. Xerxes' reign in Persia was from 46 to 465 BC. And Esther was his queen. She began her reign sometime around 479 BC. And then after that, once again, we have the second return to Jerusalem under Ezra in 458 BC, and then a third return to Jerusalem under Nehemiah in 444 BC. Some sources will say 445 BC, but I think uh, um, Harold Honer has it, cor- has it correct when he says 444 BC was the, was the date when, when Artaxerxes issued the decree that began the, the 70 weeks prophecy. Now, as you, as you read through the book of Esther, you might get the idea that all of these events happened in a, a fairly short period of time. But if you pay attention to the, the chronological information that's given to us in the book of Esther, you'll see that it, it really took place over a period of about 10 years. The, the banquet that you read about in the first chapter of Esther, we are told that that takes place in the third year of Xerxes' reign. That's when he held this banquet. It wasn't until the seventh year of his reign, four years later, that Esther goes to Xerxes and becomes the queen. And then it's not until the twelfth year of Xerxes' reign that Haman casts lots and issues his decree. So this is just a a timeline showing some of the events during the book of Esther. So in 45 was was when uh, Xerxes began his reign. And in here is when he's having the, the, the banquets. And at the end of, the, of these banquets, that's when Vashti is deposed. Now, I mentioned that, that it seems more likely that Xerxes was the king of, of the Book of Esther because these banquets that he had for 180 days, they weren't just banquets. They were planning sessions for an expedition. He was planning to go to war against Greece. So he wanted to get all of his people fired up and prepared for this this endeavor. And he probably didn't have all the guests there at at, at Susa, at the palace, for the entire 180 days. What he probably did is he, he invited representatives from some of the provinces to come, and then they went home and other provinces came. So he, he, took, he, he cycled through all of the provinces during this 180 days and brought them to the palace to get everybody prepared for this war that he was about to engage in. So over here around 41 is where his, his expedition to Greece began. And it didn't work out quite the way he planned. I'll talk more about that later. Um, 
So around 484, 79, that's when Esther was brought to Susa for 12 months, remember, of, of preparations. Uh, then Xerxes returns to Susa, and uh, he's pretty... He's pretty down and dejected because of how badly the, his, his plans to invade Greece turned out. And so his advisors said to him, you need a new queen. And they didn't want uh, Vashti to come back because they, the advisors knew that if Vashti became queen again, that would be the end of them. <laughs> because they were the ones who told him to get rid of Vashti. So if Vashti returned, she would probably take vengeance on the advisors. And then Esther would have been made queen about 479 BC. The, the travel tips, the things that we can learn from the book. The book of Esther shows the importance of developing the kind of character that God honors. Even when it may seem that God isn't watching, we should live in a way that shows the integrity of a heart seeking to honor him. Because what we say and do truly matters to him. It may not be obvious how God is working in a given situation, but he is indeed at work. As you work for God, seek his approval, not men's accolades. Mordecai helped thwart a plot to kill the king, but he neither sought nor received recognition for a long time. God never wastes a life dedicated to him. He is faithful to mold and shape you, both in your heart and through the circumstances in which you find yourself. Esther is a unique book. It is the only book of the Bible which does not even mention God. It contains neither the divine name, Yahweh, yod heh nor Elohim, the Hebrew noun meaning God. There is no mention of Jerusalem or the temple, even though Cyrus had already issued his decree that allowing the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and to begin building the temple. There's no mention of Jerusalem or the temple in the book. And no one prays in the book of Esther. At least it's not recorded that anyone ever prays. Now, some people apparently were very troubled by this. They thought that a book of the Bible should contain information about God. So by the time that the Septuagint was written, six different additions had been made to the book of Esther. And you will still find those additions in Catholic Bibles and in Orthodox Bibles. They, they still have those additions to the Septuagint, those apocryphal additions to the story of Esther. So this is just a, a table showing you um, what they're about and, and where they're inserted. The, the first insertion is, is actually before uh, chap one, chapter 1, verse 1. And it talks about Mordecai's dream of impending conflict between two dragons. Um, the next edition is, is the king's first letter. And remember, the king, according to the Septuagint, the king is Ahasuerus, or the king is, is Artaxerxes. Ahasuerus is Artaxerxes. 
So that's even another reason why I don't think these additions are part of the original story. But the, this king uh, in, in the Septuagint, Artaxerxes, he, his first letter ordering, ordering the massacre of the Jews, we find that in these editions. The next one is the prayers of Mordecai and of Esther for God's intervention. So they, they had to have prayers in there because there, there were no prayers in, in the original book. So they had to have some prayers for Mordecai and Esther. And then uh, the next edition talks about Esther risking her life to appeal to the king and she faints before him. That's in this edition. That's not in the, the book as we have it, but that was in the edition. And then after all of this comes to light about Haman's evil plot, then the king issues a second letter condemning Haman and, and praising the Jews. And then the final edition of the book is Mordecai's dream is, is clarified, is decoded. Uh, we are told that these two uh, dragons that he dreamed about represent Haman and Mordecai, the two dragons that he were, was dreaming about. So those are the editions. And down through history, some Jewish people and some Christian people just really don't like the book of Esther. Uh, Martin Luther did not like the book of Esther. Uh, this is what he said. He said, I am so hostile to the book, and he was talking about Second Maccabees, one of the apocryphal books, and to Esther. So he, he lumped Esther right in with the apocryphal books and to Esther, that I wish they simply did not exist, for they Judaize too much and reveal much bad pagan behavior. Well, what he didn't seem to, to realize is that if it were not for the events in the book of Esther, there would be no Jesus Christ. I mean, the preservation of the Jewish people, and particularly of the, the, the line of David, saw to it that we did have a Savior. So I can't really agree with Martin Luther on this one. Location. The story of Esther takes place in the royal city of Shushan, or Susa, as it's often rendered in our English translations, in the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire had two capitals, a summer capital at Persepolis and a winter capital at Shushan. The palaces of the two cities were mirror images of one another. They were exactly alike. So even though the palace at, at uh, Susa is more destroyed than the one at Persepolis, we can know what the one at, at uh, Susa was like by looking at the one at Persepolis because they were the same. So this is a, a map of, the, of how vast the Persian Empire was. And here is the, the capital of Susa, the winter capital. Here is the capital of Persepolis, the, the summer capital. And here, just for reference, you can see where Babylon was located. So when, when Persia took over, things kind of shifted further to the east. But of course, um, 
Persia, the Persian Empire in, incorporated the Babylonian Empire and, and then some. It was a huge empire. Uh, here you get a better idea of the extent of the empire, of how large it was. When we, when we think of Persia, we usually equate it with uh, modern-day Iran, but it was much larger than, than Iran. It was clear up into a uh, whole ways into Europe. And uh, the way it's described in the Book of Esther is from India to Ethiopia. So that's, that's kind of like saying, you know, from, from Maine to California, giving the, the extent of the, of the empire. As I said, the, the Persian Empire was huge in, in, in the amount of land that it controlled. It was larger than the later Roman Empire in terms of size. Now, in terms of population, well... It's kind of like comparing apples and oranges because by the time that the Roman Empire arose, much later, several centuries later, uh, the world's population had, had become much larger. So in terms of absolute numbers, the Roman Empire had more people. But in terms of percentage of the world's population, the, the Persian Empire was larger. It's estimated that, let's see, 44%, 44% of all the people in the world were under the jurisdiction of the Persian Empire. So it was quite a large empire. Uh, I wanted to mention briefly the, the courier system. Three times in the Book of Esther, the couriers are sent out. After Vash, Vashti rebelled against the king, and the king issued a decree that the husbands were to be the, the, the rulers of their house, the, the masters of their domain. The couriers were sent out to deliver this message. And then when Haman issued his decree that the Jewish people were to be annihilated, the couriers went out. And then finally when Mordecai issued his counter-decree that the Jews were authorized to defend themselves, the couriers went out. The Persian Empire had developed a very efficient Pony Express system to quickly deliver messages throughout this vast empire. So they had developed a very, a very uh, efficient Pony Express system. It, it was actually much like the, the Pony Express system that existed for a short time in the United States. You know, every every twenty miles or so, they would, you know, get a fresh horse. So they could keep moving at full speed. In fact, the motto of the U.S. Postal Service, Brian, <laughs> the, the the motto that's inscribed on the on the post office in in New York City, which says "Neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds." That actually comes from ancient Persia. That's where that idea comes from. That, that there were couriers that were, were going to get through, deliver the message, no matter what. The location of Susa. Here are some actual excavations of, of the site of Susa. Now, this fortress that you see here, 
That is not an ancient structure. That was built to protect the French archaeologists who were excavating the site in the 19th century. So Westerners working in the Middle East have been concerned about security for a long time. It's, it's not hasn't been a very safe place to work. But another thing that I wanted to point out, this is where the palace was located. You know, the, wall, the walls aren't standing anymore. But you'll notice that it's built on a hill, on a plateau. It's higher than the city. And the interesting thing about that is, remember the wife of Haman tolling the bill of gallows, 50 cubits high, which is about 75 feet. And well, why so high? Why build it so high? Well, because the palace was on this plateau higher than the city, Haman wanted to be able to look out as he was dining with the king to look out and have Mordecai's body be at eye level. That's why he wanted to build the gallows so high. One of the reasons that I find the Book of Esther so fascinating is because we can know so much about where things happen. Uh, we, once we know the layout of the palace, we can, we can actually know, in many cases, the exact room where, where these events happened. It, it's different from the, from the Book of Ruth, for example. I mean, you, you can't go to Bethlehem and, and see a pile of rubble and say, that was the home of Ruth and Naomi, and over there, that was the home of Boaz. I mean, you can't do that. We, we just don't know those things. But with the book of Esther, we, we can know exactly where, where things happened. Um, th this is the palace complex. This is the gate to the, to the palace. This area over here is called the Arpadna. And it was a huge columned hall. There were, there were columns. And th this is where the, where, the, where the huge banquets would have been held in this, col in this uh, columned hall here. And around here are the gardens. You remember in the final scenes where uh, Esther finally confronts Haman and the, the king is so furious that he has to go outside in the gardens for a while. Well, the banquet would have been held in here, and the gardens are out here. And these are the outer courtyard, the, the middle courtyard, the inner courtyard. The, the king's uh, apartment is here. The throne room is here. Uh, the, the women's quarters would have been over here. This was a, uh, a courtyard for the women. And this this gate here, this would have been the gate where... where um, Esther's cousin, Mordecai, would have been hanging out in this gate here. And this is just a listing of, of the various um, places in the, in the palace complex. And, and the, it gives us scriptures where, where various things happened. And this is just another diagram of, of the palace complex. Here's a moat, here's a bridge over to the, the main gate. And then here, once again, here's that 
that hall where the banquets were held and the gardens around it. The throne room was here. And there's just an artist's conception of what the palace might have looked like. This is the other capital at, at Persepolis, the, 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 the summer capital. And many of the pillars are still standing here. One of the things about the books of the Bible is that liberal scholars always insist on saying that the books of the Bible were written long after, centuries after they were actually written. But in the case of Esther, we know that can't be true because within 30 years after the time of Esther, the palace at Susa was destroyed by fire. There's no way that a person writing centuries later would know all of the details about the, the, the Persian court that uh, the writer of the book of Esther gives us. And this drawing here will give you some idea of how huge this pillared hall was. So this is the pillared hall. These are the pillars. The idea was that you were supposed to get the feeling that you were in a forest. These huge pillars. So these are the pillars, and look how small the people are down here compared to the pillars. It's a huge place with huge pillars. And this is where the, the fabulous, uh, luxurious banquets would have been held. And speaking of banquets, uh, Bob has written about this many times, about the, the Hebrew word mishta, a Hebrew word meaning banquet or feast. It's a theme running through the Bible. It's, it's a special meal that brings judgment. As a result of the banquet, some are elevated and some are brought down. The result for an individual depends on his relationship to God. And we see that over and over in the book of Esther. This theme is very important in the book of Esther. As a result of the banquets early in the book, Queen Vashti is brought down and Esther is elevated. As a result of the banquets later in the book, Haman is brought down and Mordecai is exalted. The word mishta occurs 55 times in the Old Testament. Of those 55 times, 20 are in the book of Esther. And we can see that um, Xerxes was quite a party animal. Seven of Esther's ten chapters refer to somebody throwing a party. Sometimes there's more than one party in, in a chapter. So there, there are nine parties, nine banquets or, or feasts in the book of Esther. There are ten if you count. If you want to split the last one, number nine into two, because it, um, the celebration of Purim is on the 14th and the 15th. So if you want to split those into two, there are, there are ten. So first of all, there's the king's banquet for his officials, lasting 180 days. 
Then there's the king's banquet for the locals who live in Susa, lasting seven days. And then there's Vashti's banquet for the women. And then there's the king's banquet when Esther replaces Vashti as queen. So he throws another party. The next is the king and Haman celebrating the edict calling for the annihilation of the Jews. Then we have Esther's first banquet to which Xerxes and Haman are invited. And then Esther's second banquet, which she hosts with the same guest list. Then we have the Jews festival at which they are celebrate the authorization by the king to defend themselves. So they celebrate that. This is, this is even before Purim. So after the, the days of feasting that follow the defeat of the different Persian groups that attacked the Jews, and the, the celebrations were on the 14th and the 15th, you might wonder, well, why, why two days? Well, the, the, the decision that has been made by the Jewish people is that um, most cities celebrated on the 14th, but those cities which were walled cities at the time of, of this incident, they celebrated on the 15th. So the, the, the battle went on longer in Susa, so it was a walled city. So the, that's why if you go to Israel today, and I, I think some of you have been there during, during the time of Purim, they celebrate, they celebrate Purim on a different day in Tel Aviv than they do in Jerusalem because Jerusalem celebrates it one day later because it, it was a walled city. There's a, a picture of a grogger and hamantaschen. It's part of, the, part of the modern celebration of Purim. The grogger is a thing that you spin that makes a, a grinding, uh, obnoxious sound. That whenever when they're when they are reading through the story of Esther, whenever they say Haman, you know you boo hiss and and uh, make it the sound. Uh, the hamantaschen they're they're good. I like hamantaschen. I usually get some every year. Uh, they're triangular shaped cookies because the legend is that Haman wore a three cornered hat. That's why the hamantaschen is, is a Yiddish word meaning uh, Haman's pockets. Haman's pockets were full of bribes, bribe money. And one of the exciting things about the archaeological finds is that many of the dishes, the silver and golden dishes that were used in Persian banquets have been found. Obviously, they've been cleaned up after a few hundred years, a few centuries. But there they are. And this, this golden bowl is really interesting because I don't know if you can see it, but there's, there's an inscription around the edge of the bowl and that actually mentions the name of Xerxes, his, his Persian name. So as far as we know, this could actually be a bowl that was used in, the, in those banquets that we read about in the Book of Esther. And also... The Persians were noted to be heavy drinkers. And this is a, a drinking cup, a gold drinking cup. Now, you and I realize that decisions that you make while you're drunk are probably not going to be very good decisions. But the Persians looked at it just the opposite. If you're going to make an important decision 
they thought you should get drunk, that you would, you would make better decisions if you were drunk. So, so uh, that didn't seem to work out very well with uh, Xerxes planning to invade Greece. He took a huge army with him to invade Greece. But it seems like most of his army was just for show. I mean, it was a paper tiger. When they actually met some stiff resistance, they they folded. It's kind of like uh, Saddam Hussein's army when when the when the Allies uh, invaded uh, Kuwait and drove Saddam back. And his uh, his army, which he had claimed would be the the mother of all battles, it didn't uh, didn't last very long. Incidentally, uh, Xerxes was a uh, was very unstable. He, he was uh, he was given to fits of, of anger, of rage. One of the things that he did was <laughs> um, when a storm came up in a, a naval battle, didn't turn out the way he wanted it to, he had his men whip the water. They, they whipped the water to punish it for, for you know causing his defeat. So that was the, the kind of things that the kind of irrational things that, that uh, Xerxes did. Um, incidentally, th this, uh, see, his, his father, uh, Darius, had been soundly defeated at a place called Marathon when he attacked Greece. And you've heard of Marathon, the, the run? Well, that's where that comes from. When, when they, a runner went from this place, Marathon, to, to tell the Greeks about that they had won the victory. You know, that, that distance that he ran, 26 miles or whatever, is the distance of a marathon. So that's, that's the origin of that. But then when Xerxes went to attack Greece, he wanted two things. He wanted revenge for the humiliating defeat of his father. He also wanted to expand his empire into, into Europe. Well, he met the Greeks at a, at a place where, which has become famous. If you've ever seen the movie 300, that is about this, this battle between the Greeks and the Persians. The, the Persians way outnumbered the Greeks. And the Persians eventually did win the battle, but at a very high price. They suffered hundreds of thousands of casualties in this battle. So they eventually did win the battle, but then when they moved on south into Greece, that's when they had this famous defeat at Salamis, a naval battle. It's one of the most famous naval battles in history. And so that's why when Xerxes returned to Susa, he was really feeling down. And that's when his advisors tried to cheer him up and said, you need to get a new queen. So the, these historical events serve as the backdrop for the Book of Esther. Here we see a, a diagram of the genealogy of Esther. She was a Benjamite, a descendant of Benjamin. And Mordecai 
and Esther were cousins. Their, their fathers were, were brothers. And their, their ancestor Kish had been deported from Israel in, in 597 B.C. Uh, captivity. And then they were descended from the Shimei. And th- these, di- these birth dates are, are estimates. We don't, the Bible doesn't tell us for sure. But it's thought that, that Mordecai and his, was about uh, 15 years older than his cousin Esther. So he was a little bit older than Esther. I love it when we not only have chiastic structures in a book, but the entire book itself is arranged chiastically. And that is true of the book of Esther. Um, this, um, so we have a, a prologue and then a, the beginning of banquets. And there's a complication where uh, Haman issues this horrendous decree against the Jews and then they respond and the story develops further. And then the turning point comes when the king can't sleep. And that's when he has the annals read to him and they, and they just happen to be about Mordecai. And then the story after that turning point begins to resolve. The, uh, the word denouement is a, is a French word. It simply means the, the tying up of all, of all of the loose ends. You know, there, There's this tension that is constantly building and then, and then it's resolved. Now, you're used to seeing the chiastic structure arranged vertically like this. But it can also be arranged horizontally. So we see the the tension building, building, building as more and more problems develop. And then there's this turning point where the king can't sleep. And then gradually the the tension is, is resolved. This is a poor, a lot. It's just a little cube of, uh, made out of clay, fire, fired clay, just like, like pottery. And it's just like a, a little dice that they toss to, to determine whatever they're going to determine. So that is a poor that archaeologists have found. And purim, purim is the, is the, the plural of pur. Uh, I wanted to point out something about the gallows that, that Haman built. It's all, it also happened that the two men who were plotting to assassinate the king that Mordecai found out about, they were also uh, hanged on a gallows. But what is a gallows? Then his, Haman's wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman when he had the gallows made. When we think of a gallows, we think of the Old West. We think of a wooden gallows and the, the noose is put around the, the neck of the, of the criminal and the trap door opens and he hangs. And, but that's not what's in view here. We're not talking about a gallows where people are hanged with a rope. What we are really talking about is impalement. 
the person is forced down on a sharpened wooden stake, and the, the wooden stake pierces up through his abdomen, and he's just hanging there on the, on the wooden stake. So that's what we're really talking about when we're talking about a gallows in the, in the book of Esther. We're talking about impalement. The book of Esther is noted for its reversals and contrasts. Haman's promotion contrasts with Mordecai's promotion. First Haman is promoted, later on Mordecai is promoted. The gloom that hangs over the Jews contrasts with the euphoria that engulfs the Jews with the exaltation of Mordecai and continues through Purim observances. First, the Jews fast, but then they feast. Mordecai wears sackcloth when he hears about this horrible plan that Haman has cooked up, but then later on he wears royal robes. A shift takes place in the use of the verb nafal, meaning to fall. Hamanic Persians, in other words, the, the Persians who were following Haman, they cast lots. They cast the poor, the lot. That literally, they caused it to fall. They caused to fall the lot. Later, it is Haman's own wife who speaks of his fall before Mordecai, who earlier would not fall or bow before Haman. In an act of desperation and plea for mercy, Haman falls before Esther. And then later on, the fear of the Jews falls on the Persians. Now, if you want to think about just how important God's providence is, consider some of the what-ifs in the book of Esther. What if some beautiful young virgin other than Esther had caught the king's eye? What if Mordecai had not overheard the conspiracy against Xerxes' life? What if the lot for the Jews' execution had been one that was dated a short time after it was cast? See, as it was, the lot was cast in the first month, Nisan, and it didn't come up until the date that came up was the 12th month. So there was a whole period of about 11 months for this plot to be discovered and for everything to be turned around and for the Jews to prepare for, for what was going to happen. But what if, what if the, the lot had come up with a date that was only a short time away? What if Esther had not agreed to put her life on the line? What if Xerxes had slept through the night? Instead, he... he couldn't sleep. He had insomnia. And what if Xerxes had had his servants read to him a passage that made no mention of Mordecai? What if Haman had not thrown himself on the couch where Esther was reclining? You see, the, the king Xerxes really didn't get angry about this until he thought Haman was assaulting his wife. That's when he, when he really went into action. And to top it all off, what if Vashti had simply complied with the king's request and 
and went when, when she was bitten. Well, then this whole story wouldn't have happened. So you can see that, that God's providence is very important. And you can see that God is working behind the scenes. Now, what about this idea that the name of God isn't mentioned in the book of, of Esther? Well, here's something that will make you go, hmm. There are four acrostics in the book of Esther. I'll explain to you how this works. The first acrostic, the first acrostic appears at the conclusion of Memucan's council regarding the disposition of Queen Vashti. In other words, what are we going to do about Queen Vashti? In verse 20, as, it, as is shown below, so these are the, the first four words of that, of that verse, 120. And remember that the Hebrew reads from, from right to left. Now, if we take the initial letters from each of these words and put them together, we see the, the, the sacred name, the Tetragrammaton the name of God. But it's spelled backwards because Hebrew reads from right to left and we're going backwards here. Yod, hey, vav, hey. So, so we're in, in Hebrew, we're actually going backwards because we're going hey, vav, hey, yod. That's the first acrostic. The second acrostic occurs when Esther invites the king and Haman to a banquet. In verse 5, 4 and is shown next. So once again, we take the first four words of that, of that verse, and we see yod hey vav hey. Once again, the initial letters, because God was initiating the action. God was ruling and causing Esther to act. So this time, it's not backwards. It's, it's in the correct order in Hebrew. The third acrostic occurs with Haman's gloating in verse 513, and it's shown below. Now notice this time, we're not talking about the initial letters of the words, we're talking about the final letters of the words. So Haman's end is approaching, and God was overruling Haman's gladness and turning back Haman's counsel. So this time, the, the, the letters are in reverse order. They're backwards. The fourth, this fourth one in verse 7, 7, like the third, is formed by the final letters. For Haman's end had come. So once again, we're dealing with the, the final letter of each word. And we have yod he vav but it is spelled forward like the first one. For God was ruling and bringing about the end he had determined. So, the overall design. Each of these four acrostics, revealing the, the tetragrammaton, the sacred name, invokes the utterance of a different speaker. So there's a different speaker that, that was speaking each time. 
The first time it was Memucan, one of the king's advisors. Then it was Esther. Then it was Haman. And then the fourth one is by the author of, of the book of Esther. So these first two were the initial letter of each word. The last two were the final letter of the, of the four words. In the two cases where the name is spelled backwards, God is seen overruling the counsels of the Gentiles. He's turning back the counsels of the Gentiles for the accomplishment of his own purposes. Where the name is spelled forward, he is ruling directly in the interest of his own people. Although it was unknown to them at the time, of course. They didn't realize what, that God was doing this. So, for the overall design, we see that in the first two cases, we're dealing with the initial letter of the four words. In the, in the last two cases, we're dealing with the final letters of those four words. And the, and the word Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, is spelled backward, then it's spelled forward, then it's spelled backward, then it's spelled forward. It's spelled backward when we're dealing with the Gentiles, God overturning the plans of the Gentiles. And it's spelled forward when we're talking about the Israelites. So it's really not quite true that God isn't working in the book of Esther. He's there. And remember that, that Esther's name itself means hidden, something that's hidden. And then I always like to end, whenever I do a Bible study on Esther, I like to end with this picture. Because Esther begged the king, she implored the king to revoke, to overturn this decree that the Jews were to be killed. But that couldn't be done because the, the, the laws of the Persians were irrevocable. That, that decree couldn't be overturned. So what happened was Mordecai issued a second decree that counteracted the first one. And that brings up the subject of godly self-defense. The, the idea that Christians should always be pacifists and they should never defend themselves against anything, that's not biblical. Eric has, has given a sermon, I think, uh, at least twice, on this idea of turning the other cheek. Turning the other cheek only applies when someone is insulting you. It does not apply when someone is attempting to kill you or to uh, invoke bodily harm on you. The Christian thing to do then is to defend yourself. So while we would much prefer to give people the gospel, to give them the word of God. As Paul said, as much as is possible to live peaceably with all men. That's what we prefer to do. We're not looking for trouble. But you as a Christian have a responsibility, especially to protect your family. 
and to protect others who cannot protect themselves. So that is um, all I have to say on godly self-defense. And that is the Book of Esther. One of my favorite books, as I said. We'll close. We'll cl- mm-hmm. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful that you have protected your people down through the centuries, that you preserved the Davidic line of your Messiah, and that you continue to, to protect and preserve the Jewish people so that they can be recipients of the, of the many promises, the many blessings that you have yet in store for them. We thank you also for protecting us, for guiding us, for instructing us, for taking care of our every need, and for moving behind the scenes. As one man said, you are there, moving behind the scenes, but in your great power, you are able to move the scenes. We thank you so much in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.